Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Chris Kint, who is a cognitive neurologist who works in Melbourne, Australia, and practices at Box Hill and Royal Melbourne Hospital. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thanks, John. Hi, everyone. Chris, today we're going to talk about cognitive neurology. I, I wanted to get your um, your top tips for trainee, early year trainees who might be encountering patients in a cognitive clinic for the first time, how you go about structuring your assessment, how you go about thinking about the different types of dementias and how you diagnose them. So to begin with, uh, can you just t- talk us through what some of your, your tips would be for this uh, when, when approaching patients like this? Yeah, so the first tip was uh, with one hour of clinical interview or history, it's it's worth three hours of cognitive testing. And, uh, you know, cognitive history taking is a different art form. And one of the keys is that you require really good informant history, which is gold and often holds the answer. Um, The other uh, thing that's different is that you've got a really delicate situation between often a dyad of the patient and the loved one and this sort of awkwardness of someone not having insight, which is mm-hmm. a delicate thing to to work through. And so I often spend one or two minutes just reassuring how, how it's going to go and some telling the patient, you know, we, we will ask questions around you and there is an opportunity to separate if required and just putting them at ease because it can be a really confronting thing for the informant um, as well as the patient um, uh, when there's this lack of insight. And then in a sense that I always open with a question in the history about um, why the patient thinks that they've come out to a memory clinic. And and that's my first opportunity to assess insight. Um, and I then look at the sort of discrepancy between the patient and the informant history. Because if the patient is less worried than the informant that's kind of a red flag situation where you know we see in you know conditions like alzheimer's disease where that insight does start to decline quite early on and then you can have the opposite where the patient is much more worried than the informant and that situation where you kind of feel reassured that you might be dealing with a more worrying well situation the other thing about the history and the reason why um, those of you who sat in with cognitive neurologists may have noticed that we take a very in-depth history. And in, in part, that's because it's sort of part of our cognitive testing because we are asking patients to go through their autobiographical history, the, you know, back in time, gathering them, you know, the knowledge of their medical history. In a way, it's a form of us getting that sort of qualitative feedback at how good that is giving you dates and accuracy in the history. And you may see this sort of temporal gradient um, that forms in the sense that they're really good at telling you really di- long distance stuff about their childhood, their schooling, their work. And then they start, you know, this head turning sign, which is the sign I say where they cross reference their loved ones to more recent events and trying to clarify, you know, uh, the dates of the, uh, the, the past medical history, for example. And so that can be very helpful qualitatively too. Okay, so that, that's a, that's a really good uh, first tip then. So an hour t- taking history, taking a detailed history, is worth three hours of cognitive testing. And I think certainly that's something I 
I, I know when I, I've been in clinic, um, certainly as a registrar, sometimes you get a bit fixated on, oh, I need to do a bedside cognitive assessment. And you're almost rushing to get to that point of it. But actually, you get a lot of information just from taking the history that maybe you don't need to do as much testing at the end. Yeah. And, and, and likewise, you know, it is a lot to do. I mean, one of the things, you know, is how you do this in a, a busy clinic. And sometimes I say to people, well, actually, you do the history, you get the red flag flavour, you might do the investigations. And when you bring them back, you start off with the mocker or the cognitive screening. So you divide it into two, depending on how much time you've got in clinic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's well worth taking that uh, extra yard to get particularly that in-depth informant history. And sometimes if you're dividing them, that, that, it, that does take time. Or it's worth a follow-up call if there's time and another point in arranging it, because that's where you're going to get the gold uh, in terms of getting those red flag features. Great. Excellent. I know we'll we'll talk probably a bit more about cognitive testing as well uh, later on, but what would be your second tip for a trainee then um, in, in cognitive clinic? I would I'd be very pedantic about identifying the tempo of symptom progression. So, and that helps you think about differentials. So firstly, you know, what age of onset have you got here? So if you've got sort of an older person, it's more likely to be uh, in a nice way when I say garden variety, but more common variety processes. If you've got a young onset individual, then you might be thinking genetics. Uh, you might be thinking something a bit more rare uh, and atypical. Mm. Then also the the onset time. So was it more of a uh, sudden uh, over days or is this more insidious onset and gradual? Now, insidious onset and gradual is typical in Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative processes, but in something like a thalamic stroke, you may see a sudden change in the one's cognition. Um, in other processes that um, uh, are rapidly progressive dementias like autoimmune encephalopathies, um, you might see, again, a much more acute beclouding of uh, symptoms. So that, that that's very important. And then for me, you've got to try and map out the evolution of symptoms uh, what order did they come in? And that helps you identify the disease signature. So, for example, if we use Alzheimer's disease, I often try and clarify, well, what were the first symptoms? And in Alzheimer's disease, it's often, you know, a bit of social withdrawal, some anxiety, because they're starting to realise that things aren't ticking along well with their cognition. So they do have that anxiety flavour initially. And then, you know, more day-to-day -day examples of memory problems, and um, what I call rapid forgetting in everyday situations where they lose information altogether, like that it hasn't been said before and there's some repetition and questioning. And then later on, you, you know, you're getting some more word finding difficulties, some problems around planning and judgment. Um, and then very later on, you're getting problems in uh, sort of uh, behaviours and uh, you, might get more, you know, might get psychotic symptoms. So there is a, uh, an evolution of a condition that's really important to try and gather. Sometimes it's really hard and some, you know, as much as you try, you just can't get that tempo and that's fine, you move on. But if you can get that sort of tempo and progression, it can be very helpful. Yeah, and I guess what you're kind of saying there as well is it, it may not be that the early symptoms of, of, of the dementia may be as obvious as some of the later symptoms. So you do need to dig a bit deeper there and, and be yeah. careful about that sort of thing. Yeah, I think one of the things is, you know, um, that the, the onset of these conditions are often longer than what 
the family give you okay because they identify things that are very prominent you know that that situation where they have scratch record repeated themselves on occasion but they've ignored the year before where actually they were a little bit quieter that they you know they they won't want to be doing hobbies and interests that like before and and so do think about the fact that those more benign symptoms have to be asked about or you'll never get them and one of the classic things is when we see a rapidly progressive dementia that comes into hospital and we think cjd right but then when we go in and assess them and we take a proper history we realize that actually there were things going on in this patient a year beforehand but everyone has said oh it's been three months but that's because people tend to see the more prominent yeah. you know they tend to get the history of the more prominent features um yeah. and so that that's really important again like you're, you're you're saving yourself a lot of worry and then worry if you can then find out that it was a bit longer you still probably do the testing but you're then not so worried about something atypical if you can get more of a prolonged history okay great what would be your next tip I think dig deeper with a memory complaint. So it's the, by far the most re- common referral question about a memory problem. But um, the, ra- the reality is that um, attentional difficulties and language problems can often be uh, masked uh, by people thinking of a memory problem. So I'll, I gave you a bit of a flavour of what an amnestic memory history is. So I like to ask questions about you know, examples of rapid forgetting everyday situations. So that's like, you know, a, they've they've had a conversation and then when they've discussed it again later, it's like, it's just gone. They've just forgotten it altogether. And giving a clue or a prompt in those situations does, doesn't bring it back. And often the families will talk about them being quite repetitive uh, in their conversations, okay? So I do try and explore whether there's those red flag moments of a storage memory problem, which is rapid forgetting, okay? And that's Ray very worrying for something like Alzheimer's, okay? A measles temple uh, issue affecting the hippocampus, all right? So that's why I go. And then, you know, you can add on other questions around memory, around misplacing items, being good with appointments. What's that time tagging like? So the ability to to remember, you know, when they saw uh, the other specialists two months ago and when did they have their MRI? So that's sort of time tagging issues. And... Um, an attentional history, you'll see these patients a lot, okay? And attentional uh, dysfunction is a common thing. And it, it's not really a diagnosis. It's a broad group of conditions that can cause inattention from obstructive sleep apnea, people on chronic pain medications, psychiatric conditions. You know, neurological conditions such as Parkinson's disease can have attentional problems as well. So there's sort of an attentional history. And that flavor is things like, people describing walking into a room forgetting what they've come for and blocking uh, in conversation being overwhelmed with receiving verbal information and uh, you know uh, struggling to maintain their concentration to uh, uh, across a task such as reading or watching a tv program and and these patients often give a really detailed account of the examples of forgetting and that in a sense sense argues against a primary memory problem. If they can tell you the words that they've forgotten and the moments the memory relapses, that kind of tells you that this isn't a primary memory problem. It's probably most likely an attentional issue. Yeah. And and again, you get all of that from the the history and the examples of what they forget rather than just testing for, you know, uh, registration and delayed recall. Yeah. Yeah, You can get that. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly right. And again, so you're getting that quality. I, I think you're probably gathering a lot of this is just a quality of flavor back. You know, if they're able to give you an independent industry really well, you're not so worried about, yeah. you know, a mesial temporal neurodegenerative process. Um, and so the other thing is then off beyond memory is to take sort of a domain approach to your questioning, just so that you cover the basis. So I'll give you a few, you know, sort of examples of this. So I go, I go and hunt of language symptoms. So I'll ask about word finding problems, um, whether they use paraphrasic errors in free speech. Do they have any writing difficulties? Because things with primary language, well, there's a couple of neurodegenerative, there's three neurodegenerative language conditions that are called primary progressive aphasias. And they often have written difficulties as well that are reflected in. So writing, asking about writing difficulties. And then I sort of ask about and things like visual spatial difficulties and the key task there is driving so driving is not you know it's, a, it's sort of a multi you need lots of cognitive domains for driving but mm -hmm. one of the things is visual spatial so I ask about you know parking alignment and judging the distance of the car in front and uh, and then also executive functioning so a, a whole list of questions around executive functioning I find that executive function is best determined in the history rather than testing uh, on a screen, because a lot of the screenings that we do kind of neglect attention, executive functioning. So you ask questions around things like um, moments of poor judgment, scamming. Uh, there's lots of scamming. I don't know what it's like in England at the moment. There's lots of scamming going on uh, in the, uh, in Australia by, you know, all sorts of things making people more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you know, difficulties uh, with, you know, carrying out tasks that are multi-step. So someone who's a tradie or manual skilled person are they, how are they good at carrying out those problem solving tasks now is it taking them slower and then finally there's a whole load of frontal network symptoms that i ask about related to a condition frontal temporal dementia and there are some key characteristics in that group so you ask about you know whether they've lost manners or loss of social decorum whether there's any compulsive behavior have they got um good emotional cue um can they pick up on emotional cues like with their grandchildren are they good in the interaction so there's a whole load of social um behavioral type symptoms that you need to ask as well which are very important yeah it's interesting you say about the driving there i remember a case um i saw with very subtle sort of symptoms uh, from a memory perspective but i remember the i asked about driving and the patient said, oh, yeah, no, no problem. I can drive. And then the, the wife kind of chimed in. Oh, I wouldn't let him drive anymore. Yeah. You know? yeah. Clearly, there was a bit of a discrepancy there in terms of what the patient thought they were able to do. And obviously, the family members had concerns. And that, that did eventually, you know, with time progress to a more typical Alzheimer's picture. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of the things you know, we ask about is, you know, are they comfortable with the informant to be a passenger? And would they put their grandchildren in the back of the car? And, you know, that's the reality is that if the, if, the, if of those two are nay, then you're like, well, there's more going on here. Yeah. Great, uh, Chris, these, these are great tips. So what what would be your other, other tips for trainees? Yeah, so then I, I like to take a good history um, of cognitive, uh, the cognitive risks. So... Um, that's part of your past medical history. But I have in my letters, your, um, I put down a cognitive risk paragraph. And, you know, I talk about in those um, conditions would be things that are vascular risk factors. So 
obviously vascular risk factors make you think oh, what is their risk of stroke and the buildup of small vessel ischemic vascular change that has its own condition vascular cognitive impairment but we also know those risk factors are risk factors for alzheimer's so there was a really good lancet article published about dementia risk uh, in 2020 and they highlighted all the risk factors for dementia and look hypertension is a big risk factor for developing alzheimer's disease and so having a real flavor of that vascular risk factor profile is important but then there's a number of other factors that were very key so for example hearing impairment we know that hearing impairment is one of the biggest risk factors uh, for developing dementia and that can also be um uh, where the age of onset is important so middle life to um early elderly life and is a risk factor and there's lots of theories about what why that might be the case but we should ask about it because there's potential for correction out there then other things that affect attention that i ask are risk factors so i ask about structured sleep apnea and um, i ask about you know pain and um, ask about sleep because insomnia can really uh, be a particular issue with and um, you know allowing someone to have adequate memory consolidation and daytime performance so i ask about that I also ask about any risk factors around venereal disease. Um, and I also uh, take a really good psychiatric history. Psychiatric history is really important for a few things. Firstly, to say that, you know, depression and anxiety can present with attentional difficulties, memory problems, cognitive problems directly from the cells. Mm -hmm. But then if it's a, a late age of onset, so if you're, you've got someone in your room's in their 60s, 70s, with the first symptoms of depression and anxiety, that's a ding-ding red flag for me to say, actually, it's not that common without a situational trigger to have the novo anxiety. And so to me, that sort of a, can be a, the first symptoms of conditions like Alzheimer's disease. So I, I take that very seriously when I'm, I'm, I'm hearing, oh, they've all of a sudden really nervous in social situations. That, that, that's, you must take that seriously. Uh, right, what would your next tip be? Um, I the next step would be um, just thinking, making sure that you explore um, red flags for any typical process or genetic uh, etiology. So things where I think, oh, is this something a bit rare in, or genetic? Is someone who's very young age of onset um, when there is a very strong family history? And so taking a family history is really important in cognition and there is genetic risk in Alzheimer's, that genetic risk, there's a very small portion, about five, you know, 1% of total Alzheimer's is an autosomal dominant gene. Uh, but in those uh, cases, the onset of Alzheimer's in family members is towards the ages of 50. So if you're getting that sort of family tree history, ding, ding, it's a red flag history that, that this might be something unusual. And mm -hmm. um, likewise, in frontal temporal dementia, there's a genetic risk of up to 30%. And that can be sporadic, but you may uh, see a line, a family tree line of a uh, sort of a dominant inheritance pattern. And in, in that, you ask about things like any behavioral dementias, knowing that people, uh, we've only, we're probably much better at diagnosing specific phenotypes now than previously. So they may have error uh, diagnoses in the background, like Parkinson's or other neurological conditions that were at a younger age. So I wouldn't ignore, um, don't just take the, the diagnostic labels literally. They could have actually been a behavioural uh, frontal temporal dementia, for example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
Then is there anything neurological plus in the presentation? So that would be like involuntary movements. So involuntary movements, I always think if you've got someone of a subacute history in voluntary movements, I think uh, of things like autoimmune encephalitis, um, you can also get that in CJD as well. So um, I've just seen someone on the ward with CJD, my hospital in Melbourne, and they had startle myoclonus um, and seizures. So seizures being very apparent in the cognitive um, uh, condition early on. Um, you can get that in Alzheimer's disease with the buildup of the pathology in the mesial temporal lobe, so they can get temporal lobe seizures, but they are can be present in other atypical processes. So the whole, some genetic, for, for example, genetic liquid dystrophies um, would be an example, or mitochondrial conditions, you can get seizures. And then they may have come into you with the imaging already, so there might be something really hallmark feature on that imaging. So that could be, you know, extensive white matter disease that, uh, uh, that spares the U fibers and you think, oh, is this a leukodystrophy? So there might be, uh, so that you might have a hint that there's something rare going on there. And um, so that would, so look for red flag uh, features for an atypical process. Good, um, excellent. So moving on, what would be uh, another tip for, for trainees? Oh, so 50% of dementia is, um, a diagnosed dementia is functional impairment. And I don't think we get taught this very well at all. Um, you know, our tendency is to take a very superficial functional history. So, for example, um, you know, do you do the shopping, cooking, gardening? Um, uh, how are you with your meds? I'm good, thank you. So that, you know, that's you know, superficial and probably inadequate. So instead of asking that, I would ask things, have you noticed any change in performance, including subtle change or loss of ability for set tasks? And watch the informants response and watch uh, to see if they're cringing at the accuracy of the, the answer. I would, for example, if we take medication management, so that's a good a, a good uh, route down function. You can ask them, well, what medications are you on and what are they for? Um, and do you know any of the reasons why you're on those medications? Um, how do you take them? Do you arrange them in your dosset box each week or do you get your scripts? So that's just exploring a bit more in depth so that you can get a real flavour of functional impairment. The other things I like to, to work out whether, you know, function impairment can be due to physical problems or cognitive problems. So you, you can get a flavour whether it's which one it is. And uh, uh, the other thing, I, I love the question when you ask them, so have you left them on their own? Can, and how long can you leave them on their own for? So can you leave them on their own for a morning? Can you leave them overnight? Would you leave them for a week? And that. And then why, what is, what's the difficulty with leaving them alone? Oh, it's because they leave, left the hob on and they wander that, you know, they, you know, there's, there, there's some sort of environmental risk. Voila, you've got a history of functional impairment there. Um, the other thing is exploring function through hobbies. Cause as I say that um, often hobbies are relinquished and given up. And I think that's evidence supporting functional impairment as well. And you, the, the final thing, is qualitative assessment so you can still get that feedback during the consult so you know they go to the toilet during the consult do they find their way back uh, well or do, do they make the appointment at the end of the consult or was it the loved one so again some hints of functional difficulties and the reason why i'm making such a prominent point of function impairment it's so variably what people call functional impairment because you need that to diagnose dementia you know you need functional impairment and and it, it is so some people wait to their, you know, got impairments of personal ADLs, but I'd be very advocate of being sensible when you call it. But if they're not 
having problems driving, giving up some hobbies and can't be left alone. That's enough there to, to call it as a functional impaired state. Okay, great. Well, I think that's a great time to just pause and really summarise where we're up to there because um, we focused a lot on the history taking aspects in the cognitive clinic to begin there. And just to summarise your, your sort of your, your tip so far. So one was that an hour taking a sort of detailed history is worth three hours of cognitive testing. Uh, number two would be try and where you can identify the tempo of symptom onset and progression. Um, tip three was dig a bit deeper when the problem is a memory complaint. Don't just sort of take that at face value. What exactly do they mean by that? Uh, tip four, exploring cognitive risk factors, whether it's uh, social risk factors, medical history, psychiatric history. Uh, tip four was looking for any, uh, sorry, the next tip was looking for any red flags or atypical features of the story that might suggest a genetic or more unusual etiology. And then finally, there you kind of talked about avoiding a superficial functional history um, and, and really digging deeper where you can. And I think the key message to me there really is it's all in the history and it's about time spent with the patient, with the patient's informant and, uh, you know, doing that sort of heavy lifting really with the history there. Would you agree? Spot on, John. Yeah, spot on. Great. So we'll move on to your, your next tips. Now, I think what we now start to look a little bit more at is the use of cognitive testing in the clinic and and how you do that. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll progress things. Great. So, Chris, moving on then. So what would be your next tip when it comes to thinking about maybe moving on to do some cognitive testing? Yeah. So at the end of your history, you should have been able to generate a hypothesis. So, you know, is this a memory type problem? Is it a language problem? Um, you'll know some patient factors that are relevant to performance and cognitive testing as well. So in a sense, that would be the, you know, the educational history, the language, the primary first language. So there's elements of those patient centre factors that are important when you're picking the right cognitive screening tool. But also, um, you also have to show an adaptability of approach. So when you're, for example, using the Addenbrooks, um, which is a good cognitive screening tool, um, you may want to add on some extra bits. So if you found out that this patient's rate behavioural and frontal is having problems with day-to-day -day executive function, there, there is probably still some inadequacy, a lot of inadequacy on that screening tool. So you might add in things like the three-stage Lura sequence. Um, you might ask about some uh, similarity testing in addition to it. And you may or choose elements of other batteries uh, there's a frontal assessment battery as well that you can add on elements of that uh, on top so you have to show a more dynamic approach it's the same with language um, and for example things like visual perceptual issues so there's a couple of dimensions uh, there's a dimension called posterior cortical atrophy that's a visual based dimension and you um, on the Addenbrooks there's that's sort of uh, the two areas of helpful diagnosis is uh, there's some dot counting and then there's the fragmented letters but in addition to that you can get them uh, to look at um, a few other visual perceptual tasks where overlapping um, uh, items which uh, tests of visual agnosia can be added on as well so uh, my, my point is is that um, no screening assessment is perfect mm -hmm. and you may uh, think to generate some more testing on top 
And also the next, this sort of moves into my uh, next tip, which is knowing the pitfalls of cognitive screening testing. So um, I think the reality is there's multiple reasons why a test can be done poorly and it's not mm -hmm. because they've got dementia. So that can be language and cultural factors. Um, it can be educational background. It can be certain developmental issues like dyslexia. Um, or it could be a problem with effort or someone in a really severe depressed mood state. Um, now, when it comes to, I saw someone just a couple of weeks ago that was from Malaysia, had a five-year educational, uh, five educational history. She couldn't draw a cube or a clock. Um, and there were elements of the Addenbrooke's cognitive assessment, like, you know, naming a kangaroo uh, a crown, which are just not culturally uh, sensitive for her so you've got to take those factors into account as well and um, in those individuals where you've got a low educational history or English is not their first language um, you may have to put more weight on the clinical history and neuroimaging rather than the cognitive screening tool mm -hmm. and the other thing is you may have to choose a test that is a bit more language specific so the MOCA the Montreal Cognitive Assessment is um, has different languages so that's one option uh, with an interpreter or um, there's a few others a bit more language specific. We have a, an assessment called the RUDAS score, which is um, a brief ass cognitive assessment, but it's very good for translation. And, and, and so it's, it's a good sensitive test for people where English is not their first language. And then I would also say at the other end of things, um, you have people who are very high performing, intellectual, highly intellectual, who can do very, very well on an MMSC and get 30 out of 30, but still have early Alzheimer's. And um, in those individuals, um, you may have to take further steps like neuropsychology profiling in them to get a, a much more plug of their memory profile. And then the final, you know, the other area where people can do very well is in these frontal um, uh, neurodegenerative processes like behavioural variant frontal temporal dementia. That uh, is in, that is uh, heralded by changes in behaviour, but they actually can score very normally, particularly early on on uh, cognitive screening. And again, it sort of highlights the fact that um, the, 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 some of the tests are very sensitive for executive functioning, and but also that the history again may pick up more evidence of that on an everyday basis. Um, and yeah, it sounds like the way that you use these tests is not so much focusing on, you know, what, what score is out of an arbitrary 30 or 100 or whatever. It's more to test the hypothesis that you've generated at the end of your history anyway. So if you go into the test without a hypothesis, it's uh, yeah, to know it's, what to do with the results. Exactly right. So you can get someone with behavioural variant FTD who scores 90 out of 100 on ACER, but then they've used a whole load of swear words when you've asked them to give you words that begin with the letter F. They've rule breaked on a few occasions by cheating at looking at the clock. Um, uh, someone the, the other day <laughs> wrote, I hate you or, as the written sentence, uh, so, but still score normally. You know, So in those cases, that there's a lot more to, about how they did the testing than what the score was at the other end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, good, excellent. So, uh, what, what would be your your next tip? So, I think um, an understanding of what rapid forgetting looks like. So, um, versus a memory retrieval pattern. Now, I try and explain this. I tried to explain rapid forgetting in the history. So, these moments of complete forgetting in everyday situations. 
that makes you have a red flag for a mesial temporal disease process, which is the most common would be Alzheimer's, but there's a couple of other ones. There's a condition called late as well that affects older people. Um, the, uh, the, um, in testing, uh, you, the memory component, to, to have a good memory component, you want um, a, a test that allows for initial uh, registration and that, for someone not to be able to register three items, they have to be severely demented or there's, um, you know, there's an effort-related problem, you know? mm-hmm. um, But then there's a delayed component where you test their recall. So the three items on the adequate cognitive assessment, uh, you leave initially two minutes and then you ask them for the three items free recall after doing the zero seven task. And instead of just them them getting their responses and they're one out of three, you then go a bit further. So again, this is not explained on the testing, but you give them prompts. So you say, oh, the first one was a fruit. And if they uh, can't remember it's lemon, then you might give them three multiple choice questions. Again, they choose the wrong one. So that is an example of where they've rapidly forgotten the item within two minutes, okay? And so it's the same with the seven part dress. uh, and there's a 15-minute delay on the Adderbrook's cognitive assessment. And, and that bit where they give you multiple choice questions, is a t- testing to see whether they're promptable or curable. And if they're not, then that is a red flag uh, feature for Alzheimer's or another type of mesial temporal process. Now, if they are promptable, um, so say that they, they get with confidence, um, with all that, they don't, they're free recalls, uh, two out of seven parts of that seven part address and they when you give them the, the multiple choice questions they they give confident responses and they are correct now that's a retrieval type memory profile and that is not specific to a particular process you can see uh, retrieval uh, problems in vascular cognitive impairment where there's a build-up of you know ischemic small vessel vascular disease parkinson's disease nph ms depression, anxiety, but they've got more of a retrieval profile. So that, uh, uh, that's important to know uh, and, and can be, particularly with rapid forgetting, you're then thinking, ah, you know, this is, this is looking like, this is confirming what I can hear in the history, okay? And, and, and that's important. Yeah, oh, that, that, that's, really, that's a really good tip. So we sometimes hear people talk about phrases like subcortical dementia. So is, is that what yeah. you're getting at there with... with yeah, yeah, exactly right. So that's an element of subcortical. So when they say subcortical picture, what they mean is, is a process obviously affecting the subcortical areas and not the cortices as much. So in my mind, I explain this to patients saying that the wiring between the light bulbs is affected. So one of the hallmark features is actually a slowness of processing. So if we were to time these patients in doing tasks, they actually do slower in these subcortical processes. That's what the neuropsychologists, they time them to do a trail making task, for example. But one of the other things is, is that they can't grab hold of the memories as well. They're inefficient in their retrieval. It's in there. It's actually not, these processes aren't affecting the hippocampi as much. Um, so it, the storage is there, but they're just having problems grabbing hold of it. And yeah. so, yes, yeah, so memory retrieval profile is part of that. And the other thing is um, in subcortical processes, you often see executive difficulties, issues around working memory, problem solving, um, uh, uh, multitasking, those types of things too. So, um, but yeah, that's a, a big element to it. Okay, that's, that's, that's great. 
Um, so I guess, yeah, the next tip um, really is clinic time is limited. We may not be able to do all of these cognitive assessments. Are there any things in an assessment that you think, oh, that's a very high yield thing to do? I would always try and do that. Okay, so um, I would add in verbal fluency um, to your screening, and that includes using a task of letter fluency. That sometimes you, the, the other word is phonemic fluency, where you get someone to name as many words that begin with a certain le letter. Um, on the Adam Brooks, it's P. Um, that's a test of working memory and frontal lobe function, but you can also get quite a lot of um, qualitative feedback as well. So I've talked about using error words, but there's also some rules attached to that. So you ask them not to give you words that have a capital letter or um, the same, they're the same word with a different suffix at the end. And if they start breaking rules, again, that's another quite kind of qualitative flavor that they have uh, having problems remembering the instructions or obeying the rules, which is kind mm -hmm. of a frontal process. So P word phonemic fluency would be reduced in, in, a, in, a, in frontal lobe disorder. Um, mm -hmm. And you should be able to, the average 65-year-old should be able to give you um, at least 10 P words. And that's the sort of cutoff from the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. But in addition to doing phonemic fluency, you should also do categorical fluency, which is um, another word for that is semantic fluency. And that's where they give you as many animals as they can. Now, this is uh, this would be a hot tip. So, um, Adam, we should all be able to give more animals than uh, P words, okay? So the average 65-year-old should be able to give you at least 15 animals' names, okay? But if you see that um, semantic fluency coming down below the phonemic fluency, so if they give you um, nine P words and six animals, that's a very red flag feature for Alzheimer's. Now, um that can occur at the MCI prodromal stage of Alzheimer's. It's a very early feature. And the reasons for that is Alzheimer's tends to build up in those language networks, mm -hmm. those left-sided language networks. So there's something about that buildup that leads to us being able, unable to retrieve uh, that sem that, that, those semantic um, uh, uh, words. And so, um, so that's why they do poorly. So you may see that as a, as a, as a, even earlier than the, pri uh, the, the primary rapid forgiving. Sometimes I've, I've got a profile that's more of a retrieval profile and I see that semantic fluency going down. And I think, well, that's, that's, that's significant. Mm. Okay, that, that, that's interesting. Um, and then Chris, what would be your sort of your final tip, tip 10 for trainees listening? The first thing to say is um, taking good informant history. And we've talked about the importance of history. We talked about the history being part of your cognitive assessment. So you're actually doing a, a screening test as you're taking the history. Um, I've talked about um, the fact that um, you have to have your ears open for red flag features. And that includes taking good family history um, as well as looking at the age of onset and the rapidity of progression. Then we've talked about screening tools. Now, we haven't gone in, in depth on each of the screening tools, but what I... I highlighted that you've got to be aware of the reasons why someone might fail a test, um, but also use the right test with additional add-ons so that you can get as maximum from that screening test. Um, I know screening testing is perfect, and sometimes uh, there is a need to, to, to go on to neuropsych testing. And uh, just on that note of neuropsych testing, um, so um, neuropsychology testing is a three-hour battery of testing 
are looking much more in depth at each of those cognitive domains. And particularly it's useful when you've got a high performer who um, is uh, who has a, a, a very good educational history and will do well on a cognitive screening. And you want to plug um, areas like memory in more depth. Um, and so uh, often on that testing, if you're worried about Alzheimer's in those patients, you might get more evidence of rapid forgiving if you go a bit further. The other reasons that to do neuropsychology testing is in those atypical presentations. So I've mentioned the visual variant of Alzheimer's, for example. There's actually a load of additional tests around um, praxis, around visual spatial function that can be really very, very helpful to add on and add to the picture, but you may not have time in your brief assessment. The other thing is to use it as a marker of progression. So sometimes I'm not sure if someone has a neurodegenerative process. There's some red flags features there's a retrieval memory profile but i'm still a bit worried and and actually having an in-depth profile to then do again in two years time is um to see whether there's any change maybe there's a mood component that you want to correct in the interim period that might, and give it the best chance of improving can be very helpful too so an interval serial neuropsychology assessment and it, yeah it sounds like so it's not something you you necessarily always do and Equally, you can't substitute your own assessment in the clinic for just sending them to a neuropsychologist to do this. It's it sounds like it has to be hypothesis driven again, really. If you if you are sending someone to a yeah, I think one one of our things is when you're referring on, it, you, you it'd be great for you all to think of what they give them the information around the imaging, the cognitive, what you're thinking in as your impression, so they can. Uh, uh, answer the right questions you know that if you're yeah. thinking it is a typical Alzheimer's presentation add in the fact that you know you've got the imaging changing because they the reality is that they'll give you a cognitive profile back but you they could a- add on more strength to their to their conclusion and um, if you're giving them um, some of the, uh, the the areas that they don't have as much expertise in and you're right so if you if it um, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and you've got an uh, assessment that um, looks very much like Alzheimer's and you've got either hippocampal volume loss on the MRI or uh, pet changes that add to that, there's no need to refer on. I think you've got your, and in this world of new biomarkers, there'll be other tests that you could do, but it's really using those more challenging atypical cases or those that are very high performing where you're, you're actually still worried, but the screening is not giving you what you want. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks, Chris, for that, for those, uh, for, well, for summarising what you've talked about there and for those tips. I think there's a lot we haven't covered, obviously. Um, this is obviously a rapidly uh, expanding uh, field. And I know you're in Amsterdam at the moment at an Alzheimer's um, uh, conference. So I'm sure there's plenty we could get you back to talk about on the podcast uh, a later date, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's a really exciting time to be in. I know everyone thinks their area is exciting, but <laughs> I think cognitive neurology is really going to be changing in the next five years. So um, I think for those who are interested in it, look, if you like what you're hearing from in terms of the assessment, and look, I always think cognitive neurology is a bit like the traditional neurology. You're kind of a detective and your reliance is on the history and, and getting a flavour of these presentations. But now we've got, and probably also a lot more excitement in the biomarker and therapeutic space um, that will evolve in the next five years. So 
hopefully it might grab some people to the area on that too, where I think there's been a traditional little bit of nihilism around it. Um, I think that will change in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks, Chris. And uh, yeah, speak to you soon. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.